Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Dr. Kirk Parsley. He joined the Navy SEALs right out of high school and served for 10 years. Doc then entered medical school at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, graduating in 2004. From 2009 to 2013, he served as the undersea medical officer at the Naval Special Warfare Group 1. While there, Doc led the development of the group's first sports medicine rehabilitation center. Seeing the negative impact of sleep deprivation, Doc developed the all-natural sleep remedy and now lectures worldwide on sleep, wellness, and hormonal optimization. So, Doc, what are a couple of your uh, favorite... Uh, misconceptions or myths about sleep and or naps in particular? Well, the the biggest misconception about sleep is uh, that you don't need it, you know, that it's a luxury. Um, I mean, I, I don't know why, uh, you know, it's a physiologic need. I don't know why it's considered a luxury, but, uh, you know, something in our, in our Western programming got to, uh, got into everybody's head that, you know, if you're sleeping eight hours a day, you're being lazy because, you know, go-getters get up and get going early and uh, you can just push past it and all that. And you're obviously you, I mean, you know, as well, I do that, you know, your, your uh, performance is measurably diminished by decreasing a little bit, you know, decreasing sleep uh, in a single night, just, you know, taking away a little bit of sleep, um, you know, because we know the, the prefrontal cortex is the most, impaired region of the brain with sleep deprivation and it's the most important for what most people do throughout their days um and you know it gets in the way of of every single activity um uh no matter what your goals are whatever your future is you're aiming for um the the likelihood of getting there or the the uh rate at which you get there is, is diminished by not getting enough sleep it'd be the same it's the same as anything else. Like if you have a machine that runs off of certain resources and you take away a few of those resources or even one of those resources, you diminish the, you know, the working capacity of that machine. And if, if you want to be ultra simplistic about it, that, you know, that's the human body is really just a machine, right? Like we're using it as a machine at least to get us to where we want to be. And then my second, uh, the second most common misconception I'd say that goes right in, <clears throat> right in line with that is, uh, you know, the, I know a guy fallacy. Well, well, I know a guy who only sleeps four hours a night and he runs a multi-billion dollar company and he's the top of this and he's the top of that. I'm like, maybe he only sleeps four hours a night. Maybe not. I seriously doubt it. But if he does, 
just think how amazing he would be if he slept eight hours a night, right? He would be twice as good or three times as good. You know, it just just because somebody doesn't suffer as badly or their potential is so much higher than yours to begin with, right? Because, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll shock your audience. All men aren't created equal. Like some people are much better than other people. And that's why we have the Olympics. You know, it's like nobody wants to watch me run a hundred meter dash, you know, it's going to be really boring. Um, you know, so that there are, there are huge variations in people's capacity. And we know that, I mean, the science is unequivocal that you are diminishing your capacity by uh, decrease, diminishing sleep. Um, and as far as naps, I, I would just say, um, again, naps, people think that people who nap are lazy um, or soft or weak or whatever. Um, not true. And uh, the other thing is that people think naps will interfere with your sleep at night. Um, they don't as long as you nap, you know, at least as long as you wake up from a nap at least three hours before your nocturnal sleep and your naps are in your naps are, you know, a maximum of right around the 90, 90 to 100 minutes, 110 minutes, maybe like that at the far outside. You don't want to do anything more than one sleep cycle. No, I love um, I would counter the anti nappers by saying. Have you ever heard of a guy called Winston Churchill? Because, as you know, Doc, and you, Jim, and just being a Churchillian and writing a book about him, I know from my research that even at, you know, the height, the, the most, during the Blitz, say, in World War II, he had two routines that he would never change. A hot morning bath for 60 to 90 minutes, and sometimes one in the evening. And then also his nap schedule had to be a minimum of one hour. And it didn't matter what was going on with Hitler, what was going on with right. Stalin. It was imperative and he would not change the nap schedule or the bath schedule for anyone or anything. So if he can get away with it, particularly when we yeah. were kind of holding on and waiting for FDR to do the necessary and kind right. of standing alone with the Commonwealth countries... Um, then I'd think whatever anyone else would use as a um, as an excuse or an an anti nap stance, Churchill had better cause to nap. <laughs> yeah, and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Edison were both big nappers as well, and George yeah. Washington, I believe. So, okay. yeah, there's a saying that Phil and I really like from the field of sports psychology, which is uh, working hard is important, but uh, resting well is uh, mandatory. Right. No, for sure. Um, Doc, we work a lot with student athletes, and obviously there's this big NCAA survey. They're now into their second and soon to publish their third edition of 37,000 student athletes, and they found that mental health concerns since the start of COVID <laughs> are up by um, between 200 and 250%. What role, particularly for, say, adolescents, you know, or even preteens, say from 9, 10 years old up to early 20s, does sleep play in mental health slash emotional stability? Yeah. Well, uh, so, I mean, so there, there are companies unpacking that. So you know, one of the first things, you know, as I mentioned with the last question, the prefrontal cortex is where we get our executive functioning, right? It's uh, Robert Sapolsky calls it the simulator. So it allows us... <clears throat> to simulate ideas, right? So instead of jumping off my roof of my house to figure out if it would hurt, I can simulate that and say, yeah, I've jumped off of other stuff before. I can predict with that, like that's going to hurt. So I don't need to do it. Um, but, you know, problem solving, you know, coming up with complex plans, 
even things as simple as our willpower, um, our appetite regulation, um, all of that comes from the prefrontal cortex. We call it executive functioning, right? Think of what an executive does, you know, the types of decisions they make. Um, again, that area is the most impacted with sleep deprivation. And attention deficit disorder is, is essentially um, an inadequate functioning prefrontal cortex. So if you look at the symptoms of ADHD and you look at the symptoms of sleep deprivation, they're indistinguishable because you're doing the same thing. You're impairing the prefrontal cortex. So you don't really know if you have ADHD uh, if you're sleep deprived. If you're sleep deprived, you need to first sleep adapt and see if, if you still have those issues when you're, when you're getting enough sleep. Uh, the other thing that happens when you're sleep deprived is because you didn't restore and replenish your resources as much as you needed to. You know, you're bought into this contract, right? There's there's no getting around it. It's like when you're born, you're guaranteed a couple of things. You know, one of those things is that you're going to die. Um, another the another one of those things is that, you know, when you're in a, at least the majority of your life, you need about eight hours of sleep to recover from being awake for 16 hours. Now, you can get by without doing it, but the whole purpose of sleeping tonight is to prepare my brain and body using today as the template to prepare my brain and body for tomorrow. So if I sleep six hours instead of eight hours, tomorrow still comes. And so how do I get through it? I didn't, I didn't fuel partition. I didn't store resources. I didn't uh, calm. I didn't balance my nervous system. I didn't finish digesting. I didn't finish producing stress hormones. I didn't, um, or, uh, sex hormones. I didn't finish emotionally categorizing events. I didn't finish laying down durable tracks to new information from working memory to long-term memory. There's a lot of things I didn't do. But tomorrow still comes. I still have to get through tomorrow. Well, how do I get through it? The same way I get through any sort of physiologic stress that I'm not ready for is I release stress hormones. And what do stress hormones do to the prefrontal cortex? You know, if you've ever been in a fist fight uh, or a gunfight or a car crash, uh, if somebody asks you your address and phone number, you probably wouldn't be able to tell them because your prefrontal cortex is impaired from so much stress hormones. Now, you're not to that degree, but you're impaired a little bit. Um so, you know, the, the emotional categorization of events is really important. And it's, it's not something that people uh, think about. It's, it's, you know, it's thought that this is one of the primary reasons for PTSD, you know, whether and we don't know, you know, what's coming first, the chicken or the egg, right? Is that, uh, you know, PTSD is uh, impairing sleep or uh, impairment of sleep is exacerbating and making PTSD more likely. So one of the things that happens during REM sleep is you do what's called emotional categorization. So, you know, for people like our age, I use the example, you know, if you get in a, if you get in an argument with your wife over leaving dirty dishes in the sink, well, that's a nothing burger, right? That's a, that's a stupid little argument that by tomorrow or, you know, within a few hours of that argument should be completely gone in both people's brains, right? Um, now, if you go to sleep tonight and you don't, you know, if you, if you're running around like a chicken with their head cut off all day after that fight, and then you go to sleep tonight and you don't get adequate sleep and you don't emotionally categorize that thing, then it kind of floats off in the ethers and it becomes something that can be a trigger. And now the memories of that leads to an unsettling blend of emotions, you know, decreased heart variability, increased sympathetic tone, and you start running a little more stress pathway over something that was completely insignificant. And again, that's small, but now maybe you know, maybe that is like an impactful argument now, you know, over the course of the next couple of weeks, that might actually change how you're thinking about 
life and the satisfaction of your relationship over something that insignificant. Now, of course, with kids, depending on their age, you know, you could put in an example, an age appropriate example, anything in there. And that's, that's one of the big things with COVID, right? Where, you know, uh, we're restricting kids socialization, which is the most important thing to a kid, right? Like, you know, once you're about 12, 13, your parents don't matter anymore. Your examples for how to function in the world are your friends. Now we're taking that away. Um, making them wear a mask, you know, you know, raising them in a, in a world where they're concerned about just their overall safety of being around other people. And like, you know, depending on the messaging that they're hearing, maybe they believe, uh, the world is now a very dangerous place and other people are dangerous. Uh, and so now I'm not going to socialize the way maybe I would have if that wouldn't have happened. That's going to change how I develop as a kid, you know? Um, and, and there, and, and the, the other really important thing, uh, to think about is that the prefrontal cortex in a male, uh, on average isn't fully formed until you're 25 years old. So if you're depriving yourself of sleep from junior high through college, you're impairing, you know, the most anabolic time in your life is deep sleep. So slow wave sleep cycles has the lowest stress hormones and the highest anabolic hormones at any time in a 24 hour period. So if you're, if you're robbing yourself of that, if you're depriving yourself of, adic- of adequate sleep, not only is it impairing your learning and your emotional categorization, it's actually impairing the anabolic activity, which would include, which would include the physical development of the neurons, the neural pathways of your brain, um, as well as your skeletal muscle and your skeleton itself and your organs and everything else. You, I mean, you can seriously impact your growth. Um, and will it change the overall end? I, I, I don't like, I don't know. Like there's no way to really study that. Um, but we know that the most anabolic activity is deep sleep. And if you're depriving yourself of deep sleep and we know that when you deprive yourself of, of two hours of sleep a night, I, you know, your anabolic hormones are 30% lower the next day. So you're running through the whole day like that. So there, I don't think there's anything that you can do that's worse for children than depriving them of sleep. And I also don't think that it's possible in today's world, the way we have things set up, that kids can get adequate sleep. Because obviously, when we're talking about adolescents to college students, if you're talking about college athletes especially, you're still talking about 9 to 10 hours of sleep, uh, what they need, right? And in adolescence, you know, it could be up to 12 hours for uh, like, you know, someone 11 to 13, 10 to 13, you might be talking about 12 hours. And kids just simply aren't getting that. And kids are spending more time on, recreational media, uh, televisions, computers, and their phones, then they're spending sleeping right now in America. If you were going to talk to a sports parent with all that in mind, Doc, what might be some boundaries around social media that they might need to set um, So around technology use, say, within maybe shutting that down within two hours of bedtime? And really the parent not just doing the thing of, I'm going to give my three-year-old an unlocked tablet and then later an unlocked iphone or android phone and that's going to become a third parent or a pacifier for their whole life can you talk to me a little bit about that intersection of as you called it recreational media and sleep both in you know say younger student athletes and in people even our age and above yeah um i mean uh one of you may be a better uh uh testimony than than myself and this but I, I have uh, I have read several studies about um, the, the learning on two-dimensional devices impacting 
your ability to learn in three-dimensional spaces. So if you're giving uh, if you're giving a two, a three, four, five, six-year-old an iPad, and you think they're doing uh, some constructive learning, uh, what you're missing is not only are they not outside playing and and learning the limits of their body and the world and learning about pain and disappointment and uh, you know calculating uh, you know, the physics involved in a young mind of you know if I jump from here to there, will I make it? You know, like. All of, all of these things are important for learning how the world works. And if you're, you're diminishing that, you're diminishing a pretty, a pretty big understanding about, you know, what, what, what happens in the world and, the, and what's important. Um, but as far as just the use of it, you know, the, the use of it is excessive. I mean, there, there's no other, there's no other way to put it. Um, and even, I would say, even if, uh, even if, you know, kids are in Zoom school. Which I I don't know how how frequent and common that is right now, but of course it was a big part of last year. Um, so now I I don't know I'm guessing probably six hours a day that they're on their computer, and then how many hours a day they're going to be on their phone? That's that's enough screen time right there, right? There's absolutely no reason to need anything more than that. To need any more than that. Now what can you actually get away with as a parent? What are you going to get your kid to quit doing? Um, you know what I did as a parent is um, I didn't allow my kids uh, to have televisions in their room. Uh, they, of course, they can get it by that by taking their computers in their room. Uh, but two hours before bedtime, everybody's notebook computers went on the kitchen counter. We had like a universal charging station. All of their phones went on the kitchen counter. Um, and they had to, you know, leave their phone in the tray and it was charging all night and leave their computer in there charging all night. And then they started getting around that, so I started uh, turning off the the wireless internet every night. So I just, I, you know, just had like I had that on a power strip, and I just flipped it off. And there was no, there was no Wi-Fi. Uh, and you know, if if they if you know if they got on their cell phones for a minute or whatever, it was it was short, and they were putting it back. Um, you know, there's. There's there's a great set of studies, and I I can send that I can send it to you. I don't I don't remember uh, I don't I don't remember the re, uh, the references on this because it's been ten years since I since I've read it. Um, and I used to have it in my lectures, but I don't really lecture about it anymore. But um, there was this there was a, a series of schools nationwide. I think it was nine schools, and they were private schools, so they had. Uh, you know, they had free will essentially to do what they wanted to with their schedule. And they pushed the starting time back. It wasn't huge. I want to say they pushed it back 45 minutes or maybe an hour at the most. Um, yeah, maybe an hour and a half. So maybe they started school at 830 or something or nine. Um, they did it in nine schools and they're all around uh, basically from Philadelphia to New England and kind of scattered throughout that. Um, and then they just collected data to say, okay, we're going to, we're just going to do this and no other intervention. We're just going to see what happens. So every single school in the study had the highest average GPA they'd ever had. Uh, they had less truancy. They had less um, disciplinary problems. All of their sports teams in every single sport, <laughs> every sports team in every sport at all nine schools had the best records they had ever had. Um, and there was one other thing, uh, but and, and then out of that, they came out with uh, one of the charts in the study was risk of injury for athletes. And it was over the course of 18 months. 
and they calculated it out. If you slept six hours a night over the course of 18 months, you had about a 30, about one in three chance of having an injury. And then it stepped down with every hour of sleep. And when you got down to nine hours of sleep, you had like an 8% chance of injury over 18 months. Um, so 33 to eight, you know, that's a huge difference, right? Uh, you know, you, you reduce your risk of injury by about 60, 66%, uh, by, by doing that. So, um, you know, for the parents, I would say you're going to get terrible, terrible pushback, uh, about what a ridiculous parent you are and how everybody else does this. And now you're such an old timer and boomer and blah, blah, blah. And you're going to, you're going to get an earful of it. Uh, but just like, you didn't let your five-year-old kid choose what was for dinner every night because you would have had ice cream and candy for dinner every night, right? Uh, you know, it's it's unfortunate, you know, to say it's unpopular, but you just have to parent and you just have to say, look, I know better. I've read the, you know, I've read the research. I've, you know, I've li I'm listening to the experts, and I know that the best thing for you is to not have this, you know. Um, and yeah, you get a lot of pushback. And another thing that I did on my with my kids is on Sunday. I, uh, this might be a little extreme, and actually, uh, no, our mutual not. friend, our, our mutual friend that we were talking about, uh, used to give me endless uh, grief for this. But I turned off my I turned off the um, the main breaker to my house every Sunday morning, and we had Sunday technology free day. So you, like there just what there wasn't anything you could do. We cooked our meals out on the grill, uh, you know, and and we uh, and and just the kids we had to play board games and make up obstacle courses and build stuff in the backyard and ride their skateboards and scooters, and they complained endlessly. But I tell you what, that day seems about five or six days long, uh, but for good reasons. And you know, within a couple of hours, the kids really got into it, and we were. You know, we were rushing off to bed, like, you know, trying to finish up the last board game or whatever, or, you know, one more round of some kind of obstacle course that they'd put together in the house or something. Um, and I really think that giving kids that mental break, like I just saw such an incredible mood shift in them uh, the next day that lasted, you know, a day or two. And then, it, you know, it, it, go, it goes away. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really healthy to. um you know, my, the whole premise of my practice, the whole way of practice medicine is that, you know, evolution is our teacher, right? I mean, this is a 200,000 year old body, uh, that, you know, evolved to eat a certain way, sleep a certain way, exercise a certain way, and kind of have a certain amount of stress and deal with that in a certain way. And, and I think, you know, the closer we can live towards that, the, the healthier our bodies will be and the better develop their bodies will be because that's how we are designed to develop i love that and kids and kids can catch up i mean people think their kids are going to be left behind it's like no get, give a give a 15 year old kid an ipad and he'll have it figured out well that's if you yeah i've seen one before he'll have it figured out in 10 mm. minutes i mean my wife and i shared a phone until i was 36 and then it was only when i was doing game changer with fergus Conley. Waterman 2.0 with Kelly Starrett and um, Unplugged with Andy Galpin and Brian McKenzie. And she was like, you're on the phone with these co-authors all day. Oh, and parentheses, you have a full-time job um, right. on top of three books and freelancing. Out. Jim knows how I roll because he's the same way. And she was like, I might want to, you know, call my mom uh, occasionally or one of my brothers, you know, heaven forbid, a friend. Right. Um, right. Go get a phone. 
But until then, I mean, it's one car, it's one cell phone. Um, so yeah, you're preaching to the choir on that. Jim, a lot of rich information in what Kirk was just saying there. Do you have any uh, a follow-up question or two for Doc um, based on what he just said? Yeah, I mean, well, one thing that uh, uh, I like that you mentioned is that kids will complain. But um, having worked with a lot of kids more in my counseling <laughs> practice years ago, uh, a lot of times they'll complain on the outside, but they're secretly uh, appreciative on the inside that uh, when parents set good limits and boundaries in terms of, hey, you can't go out, you know, every night or, you know, we're not going to be on technology every day. Um, right. You know, on the outside, they're going to complain on the inside. They appreciate it. They just won't let you know that. So keep that in mind yeah. as a parent that um, that they get that you care enough about them to set those limits and, and establish those boundaries. And and also it's uh not just that you care, but, you know, it, and of course, a teenager would never admit this, but the world's still a scary place when you're a teenager, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you, you act like you know everything, but deep inside, you know, you don't like we've been teenagers, we remember. Um, and, you know, and, and having limits and boundaries put around you by adults, you know, there's some safety in that, right? Like, like, there's, there's some subconscious, like, okay, like, I can function within these boundaries and feel safer than as I'm just like, hey, Go out the door and good luck. I hope everything works out. Like, get back to me yeah. one day, right? Well, well I and think... Yeah, yeah go well, ahead, Jim. Oh, sorry. Well, in terms of peer pressure, it's a lot easier to say, man, my parents won't let me go out or my parents won't let me be right. on the phone at this time than, than yeah. to tell the peers... My dad's a jerk. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you yeah. kind of got to be the bad guy, but everyone wins. <laughs> right, so. right. Yeah, um, Kirk. So really, what we were talking about there, and you and off, you and I offline to give uh, listeners slash viewers some context, have talked a bit about the theme of courage. And I sent you over those quotes the other day, and I know yeah. you, uh, you know, you posted at least one of them, so that 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 was cool. Um, and one of the ones at the end of the document, so it was like a data dump gem of courage quotes. You know, Churchill, Thoreau, yeah. everything. You know, Eastern philosophy, er, er, Jesus, everything in between. So. Um, what you're really talking about as a parent is that you cannot abdicate your authority and your leadership in some ways, and you have to display courage of being in the doghouse with your kids and if your spouse feels differently for a while. Um, right. But that's an example of courage. Can you share some some other thoughts that are percolating in your brain right now about the need for courage? And as Winston Churchill once said, it's he was asked which was the most important virtue, and he was quoting someone else, of course, from philosophy a few hundred years before, but he said courage because it guarantees all the others. So could you yeah. riff off of that yeah. Churchill quote and just give us a bit more context just in what you're seeing in society right now and maybe how you think we need to all be a bit more courageous? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it, it, as we've kind of talked about offline, I, you know, it's, it's my personal diagnosis and I'm, you know, I'm not a psychologist or uh and a sort of policymaker, but I, um, I, I do feel, uh, in working with private clients and just observing society, uh, you know, it, you know, j just this, uh, this tendency in society right now for certain groups to be loud and, and talk about whatever's important to them and other groups feeling like they're not allowed to talk because they might misstep and they're not any hundred percent sure what's going hundred percent sure of what's going on. Or, you know, parents disagreeing with their schools over COVID policies, not even having the courage to, to go to the school and talk about it, right? Um, you know, there, uh, and, you know, the parenting is an issue. Personal goal setting is an issue. Personal aspiration is an issue. It's, it's, 
there's there's this growing mentality of like, well, you know, we live in a prosperous, wealthy, comfortable country. Like, you know, my basic needs are met. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting by. Uh, and so as long as I'm getting by, you know, why rock the boat? Uh, you know, one of the quotes that you put in there is one that I've, one of my favorite quotes I've been using it for probably 30 years of my life is uh, a ship in a harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for, right? Like ships are designed to be out in the ocean and be unsafe. And all of, uh, and, and I can tell you, uh, you know, the clientele I work with are really, they're high performers, they're high end guys, right? So they're, they're, you know, world-class athletes, professional athletes, Olympic athletes, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 CEOs. They're really successful entrepreneurs. They're, you know, successful entertainers, whatever. They're really successful people. Every single one of those people would, would tell you, uh, that the most important thing to, in their success was, was the courage. Uh, whether they use that word or not, you could work it into that. Um, but I, it, in, in my, in my analysis of what goes wrong with people is, a lack of courage, even these really successful people, the reason they need to come work with me is because they, you know, they read, they read books and they say they get, Oh, I'm conflicted with this. You know, this guy says that and this guy says this. Well, really they have a pretty good idea of which is right. And if they don't, they could test each hypothesis, but they want somebody to give them certainty and say, here you go. Like, I'll tell you how to do it. And this is the way you do it. I'll cut through the BS for you. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's volume to that, right? There, there's the reasonable aspect, the reasonable notion that, you know, perhaps I have a better ed education to understand the differing opinions and know which is going to work for them. But I, but I do still find that it's, it's common in this group that they're, that the biggest obstacle to them succeeding is them taking action like they took when they were younger, right? When, when they started their company or when they started chasing their Hollywood dream, they started chasing, you know, being a professional athlete or whatever. They were young and ambitious and confident. And now they're 45, 55 years old. And they're like, you know, I got a lot of money and comfortable. I really want this, but they're not, they're not willing to, they're not willing to say that out loud, throw, throw down the gauntlet, make the declaration, right? You have to declare what you're going to do to some degree. Uh, most people aren't willing to make a declaration anymore. Uh, and especially if you get anything around politics or religion or anything super contentious like that. And there's hardly anything that isn't political right now. Right. So everybody's afraid of what they should do, what they should say, what they should wear, how they should behave at all times. Should I stand all apart from these people? Do I, should I wear a mask if masks aren't required? And there's all this uncertainty. Uh, you know, should I get the vaccine? Should I not get the vaccine? Um, and and there and in my experience there's no point in living your life if you're living your life under somebody else's direction, right? Like that's, that's my personal belief. If I'm, if I'm going to go out and make a value of my life, if I'm going to uh, visualize some future that I want to work towards, that's my vision. Nobody else can, nobody else can tell me what my vision is. I can say, well, this is what I want in the far, far term. This is what I want in the, you know, medium to long term. This is what I want. And this is what I'm going to work towards. And in order to do that, I'm going to do these things. And there's there's different opinions on what those things should be. But I'm making a choice that I'm going to do these things. And if I fail, I'm going to figure out how to fix it. And I'm going to do other things if that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and I just I just don't see that. I don't I don't see that. I don't see people willing to risk looking foolish. I don't see people willing to risk 
being wrong. I'm not, I'm not seeing people willing to risk, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm good friends with a lot of, uh, internet influencers, right. Um, and mainly in the health and wellness space, but there's this pressure for all of them to do stuff around, uh, race and politics and like all of this stuff bubbling up in society. And, and I talked to all of them and a lot of them are, you know, confounded by this. And I just say, that's not your area of expertise. It's not what you do. Do what you do. And if something impacts what you do, then you say something then. And if people get pissed off at you, just say, sorry, like that, you know, that's my opinion. And I, you know, I'm whatever, like I'm a nutritionist. So I don't know why you're asking me about this in the first place, but it just happened to come up in this. And so I said something about it, you know, um, and, and, and I don't know what the, I don't know what the, what the problem, I don't know what the overall cause of this is, but I do know what the end problem is that nobody's going to have a life that they want because they didn't work towards it. They didn't, they didn't take the risk. They didn't set down a plan. They didn't throw down the gauntlet and say, this is what I'm going to do. And at the end of the day, um, you know, it's kind of like being ruled by committee, right? Uh, what happens when you get 12 people together to decide what the right way forward is? Some watered down, useless, mealy mouse, slippy sloppy kind of plan that no, like nobody can make any sense out of. But you just get one of those people to say, what would you do? Okay. And do it. And like, you can actually make some progress over that. And that's kind of what we're, that's kind of what we're doing is, you know, um, it's kind of ruling by fiat, but it's the fiat of whoever has the loudest megaphone at the time. So true. Jim, what, how do you correlate that your experience of? someone getting too comfortable with success. So you've worked with a lot of um, folks that command $20 million a year salaries and have multiple MVPs, have multiple world championships. How do you help that person not settle and not become comfortable? And also, what? how do you deal in your private practice, whether it be counseling or on the sports psychology side, mm -hmm. with someone who you think man, like you, not only have you maybe lost the love of, your, of the game a little bit, but you're so risk averse these days. Like, come on, be bold. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything that we want in life is on the other side of discomfort, whether it's emotional or physical. Um, so I agree. I mean, right on the money, Doc, in terms of the power of socialization um, mm -hmm. and uh, conformity and that it's important to you know, I love the saying about, you know, it's better to be a lion for a day than a sheep for, you know, a thousand years. And, right. um, and so a lot of, you know, I, I use uh, the idea of being a champion and living a gold medal life as, as more of a, um, you know, kind of along, alongside the idea of a warrior, you know, just in terms of, you know, uh, going after what you want and living a full life and, and having values and, and, um, and doing things in line with those values. And that takes courage. Um, and it's really interesting in our discussion that, uh, one of the quotes I use with athletes is fatigue makes cowards of us all from Vince <laughs> yeah. Lombardi. So it kind of fits yeah. with the courage and the sleep. So yeah. I like yeah. that a lot. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is if you're feeling pressured to conform, um, you're never going to achieve great things in life. Um, you know, if you, if you, fall into that, buy into that. And so socialization is good, I think, sometimes to help lift people up when they've fallen down. But if you want to rock it up and, you know, and, and shine a flashlight on areas people haven't seen before because you're, you know, you're an adventurer, you're a champion, you're trying to push the, the limits of what's possible as a human, 
uh, a lot of people are going to say, don't do that. It's, you know, you're not ready or uh, who are you to think you can do that? And, and so yeah. that's where you have to look within sometimes instead of without. Uh, I remember when I was in grad school, I wanted to, I was at Michigan State, I wanted to run the Chicago Marathon and everyone talked me out of it. You know, focus on your studies. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to run that far? You know, all those kind of things. And that's just socialization. And it doesn't necessarily come from a bad place, but uh, it comes from a place of safety first. And, right. uh, and, uh, so why not chase excellence? That's more fun in life. So I ended up running the marathon and then everyone afterward was like, Oh, that's so cool. You did that. You know, and yeah. my response was, <laughs> you know, I needed to hear that kind of stuff before I ran it. Yeah. And while I was training for it, not after. I don't need it now. Weren't you the one telling me not to do it? Exactly. So, yeah, I think I think we all have to make a decision in life whether we're going to, uh, you know, uh, uh, play small or chase excellence. Right. Yeah, I I, I, I love. Uh, I think it was one of the. I think it was in one of the quotes you sent over, Phil. Is uh, if not, a, it was a, a quote I've read recently. Um, it said the opposite of cowardice, or the opposite of courage, isn't cowardice; it's conformity. Uh, and it's like, oh, that's so true. I mean, it, it can be cowardice. I was, I was thinking of our friend JP Sears and also Zuby when I wrote that based on some of their great recent work. But um, yeah, yeah, and again, like this isn't a political thing, right? I mean, we could go into a side discussion um, that would annoy some people maybe about that. But um, as Draymond Green said in his statements uh, over the last few days, why are you pushing this so hard? Like what whatever right. happened to people being able to keep their medical history private and their uh, political views private. So not very political, um, can't vote right now anyway, (laughs) because I'm a dirty immigrant. So um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't help me. I lost my voting rights in the UK because I've been gone since 2001. So it's not a political thing. I think it's a, it's a soul issue, courage or courage or Mm. becoming so risk averse because you're terrified of the consequences of being great. Um, or, or even Ben Harper has a great line, the song Glory and Consequence. I'm more afraid of living than I am scared to die. I'm more afraid of falling than I am of flying high. And I think that sums up pretty much what we're talking about. Yeah, um, I, I, I think um, you know, when you when you when you try to break it down into You know, what do you want? What, what do you want to do in your life? What's important to you? Uh, again, you can't get that by committee. You can't get a bunch of people to get together and decide what your what your values and goals should be. And you think, and you look at those, you know, athletes. They're athletes. They aren't. They aren't meant to be. Uh, they aren't meant to be philosophers, theologians, politicians, policymakers. They're athletes, and they're they're up there having the courage to say. You know, this doesn't make sense to me, right? And 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 you know, it seems uh, it seems rational that people should be able to ask questions and think about this. You know, that took a lot of courage for him to say, and he probably got a lot of backlash and a lot of negative press and a lot of hate around that. Um, but he, like, think about it. that that one statement, that one courageous statement, that one little interview that he did. I mean, it moved society, right? It shifted the needle. It shifted, you know, the view of hundreds of millions of people gave something a second thought, you know, because of the source, because somebody had the courage to stand up to the power in that moment and say what his personal beliefs are. Regardless if you agree with his personal beliefs or not, you have to admit that that was a courageous act. And for him, it was satisfying. Like for him, it moved it moved his soul upwards. 
whether he gets hate or not, like that's what's going to make him resilient towards that hate is the fact that he thinks he did the right thing and he had the courage to do it. No, for sure. Um, Jim, you've talked to me about female athletes, particularly, and we just spent some time, Kirk, with uh, with Honey Baked, which produces a lot of great hockey players, many of whom go on to D1 colleges and the NHL, and they have you know pro players and. Tom Anastas, the head of that program, was the former Michigan State ice hockey coach. And actually, John, the current coach in Tampa Bay, you know, the, the reigning Stanley Cup champions came out of the Honey Bake program. So amazing leadership team. But Jim and I went up for a few days in suburban Detroit and talked to everything from 11 and 12 year olds, boys and girls, up to those folks that are about to spend one more year in the program and make the jump to D1 college. And Jim, you know, we really enjoyed the girls there, right? But you said to them, and this stuck in my mind, um, that, you know, and I have, you know, don't have girl, a girl like you do. We have two boys, but I do have nieces and, and see this in them. But sometimes girls are, are scared in sport because they feel like if they're doing, and I'm going to butcher this, so correct me, they feel like they're doing badly um, in, the, in the game. They're letting everyone down. Whereas at the, in, the, in the inverse, if they feel like if I'm, shining individually that everyone's going to hate me then too so they can't win could you comment on that a little bit and and relate that back to what kirk's saying about risk adversity versus courage yeah it's really interesting in terms of gender and then also culture uh uh, in terms of standing apart or you know kind of being with the crowd and um so with most male athletes that i work with um it's kind of almost like a totem pole approach um to excellence where, you know, this guy's here, I want to get higher and then, you know, like kind of climb to the top of the totem pole where with a lot of the female athletes that I've worked with, um, I look at uh, their teams as more of a spider web. So the stronger the connections with everyone, the better the team. And so uh, the dynamic that I see with a lot of female athletes is if they do really well, you know, they're kind of standing apart from the team. And they, uh, you know, their perception, and it's often true, is that a lot of their teammates are going to get jealous. Why is she getting all the attention? Now, conversely, like Phil was saying, if if a female athlete, you know, a team sport female athlete performs poorly, she feels like she's let the whole team down, her parents down, herself down, her coaches down. So there's almost like I can't win either way. Um, you know, if I do well, everyone's going to hate me. If I don't do well, I'm going to hate myself. And, mm-hmm. um, and so it's really interesting. And, uh, a lot of the best female athletes that I've worked with, uh, have told me, I've asked them about this topic and they've said, you know, I just had to get over the fact that most girls weren't going to like me. I wasn't going, going to, uh, give up my goals and dreams, uh, for anyone else. And I hang around a lot of guys. I mean, that's what I hear a lot, uh, right or wrong. Uh, a funny quick story is I was working with, uh, uh, a Chinese Olympic athlete a few years ago. And uh, her big issue was confidence. And so we we're talking about confidence. And she said, man, that's so American to think that way. You know, I can do this. My best is the best. And and her approach was more about work hard, work hard, work hard, and fit in, fit in, fit in. And, uh, and you know, in terms of uh, fitting in, she, you know, it was kind of like a martial arts saying of eat bitter to taste sweet. So, you know, like the harder you work, the the better you'll get uh, with all the rewards. But it was really funny. We had a good rapport and, and, and a good working relationship. So I said to her, you know, can we strike a deal? And she said, OK, what? 
And I said, uh, how about you think Chinese in practice and think American in games? And she goes, I can do that. And so mm. she had the best of both worlds. She said, I'm confident in games and I'm the hardest worker on my team in practice. So it worked really well. It's kind of a, a fun, creative way of getting the best of both worlds for her, where she felt like I wasn't kind of leaving my Chinese identity, but I was adding, you know, kind of this American go for it identity on top of it. And then so she felt like I could live with that. And then she ended up performing really well. Love that. Yeah, Kirk, what do you see in terms of the both female and male top performers you work in? And we just talked about females. So maybe what, what is it in the male high performers? You mentioned Fortune 100 executives. I know you've obviously worked with SEAL teams and other elite military units. What what might be holding the guys back from now at any age, um, keeping them in a place of comfort and risk adversity and maybe preventing them from, you know, grabbing back hold of that courage that got them to where they are in the first place? Yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting that it's almost a 180, right? Uh, when they were young enough, well, when they were young and full of hubris, they were they were willing to uh, dismiss everybody else's opinion and belief and go for what they wanted, and that's why they became super successful. Um, now, when they come to see me, they've traded their health for their goals. Uh, most most of them, they've traded health for wealth, you know, but. Uh, uh, obviously, like the athletes, whatever, they, those guys are still healthy guys. Well, kind of healthy, right? Like, they actually have, you know, uh, like if I was going to rate the average NFL guy, like, you know, not really healthy dudes. Uh, uh, pretty sad. But, um, but you know, the, 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 the interesting thing is that it's almost a shift. It's like now they're, they're so sure, they're so certain that this, this way of absolutism, uh, of, you know, staying up late, working hard, getting up early, working hard, uh, is, is the way to succeed. And when they, when they come to, when they come to me, they're usually to some degree, they're admitting defeat, uh, because they are smart, ambitious people. And so they've read it a lot. And most of them, even if they're Fortune 100 executives, most of them were D1 athletes, right? Uh, uh, the vast majority of them have some kind of, uh, youthful prowess that they, that they recognize, but that they want to get back towards, right? Um, and now what the, now the courage is to get away from that mindset, right? Because now they need to live a life of balance because they're 50, 50 years old, right? It's like, sorry, you can't do that anymore. Like the stuff that, the stuff that got you there, you know, it's like the, the adage in business, you know, uh, like I run a couple of businesses. It's really common in the entrepreneurial space to say the team that got you there isn't the team that can get you to the next level, right? And it's the same thing. The mindset that got you to being a division one athlete or a professional athlete or a successful entrepreneur or successful executive, the mindset that got you there is not the same mindset that's going to lead to the success and the, and the things that you care about now. Because, you know, hopefully when you, by the time you get to your early mid forties, you're headed towards a second passage where you're not about proving yourself. You're not about achieving anymore. You're more about, you know, building community, being a, you know, uh, being a mentor, being, you know, being someone's elder, being a coach, being, uh, you know, something like that, focusing on your relationships with your family and your loved ones and, you know, aiming for a health of longevity to be able to see your grandchildren and that, that, those types of th things usually what become important as you get older. And the hardest thing is to get them. It's the same anxiety that leads to not doing that ambitious behavior. It's the same anxiety to say, give that up. Right. Because to them, it's like, well, this is what's gotten me through. 
So I think I need to like not eat anything but kale. Uh, I need to, you know, get up at 6 a.m. and work out for three hours every day. And then I need to go meditate for an hour. And then I need to do this. And then I, and like all this driven behavior, it's like exactly wrong. Like that's what got you to where you are. And you're coming to see me because you aren't where you want to be now. So uh, like, you know, you have to, you have to reverse this and you have to be willing to say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do any of this behavior. I'm going to completely reshift my beliefs around sleep is a perfect example. Right. Uh, Cause I, I, of course I coach everybody on sleep. That's the hardest thing I have to coach people on because they believe, Hey man, I, you know, I've only been sleeping five or six hours a night for the past 20 years and look where I'm at. I'm like, yeah, look where you're at. I mean, like you, you wouldn't be paying me what you're paying me if you were where you wanted to be health wise. You've destroyed your health by this, that, you know, and, and it's hard, it's hard to get people to do that. So they have to have, I'm telling you, it's exactly the same level of anxiety. These people are so anxious about changing their belief set that I have a harder time getting them to sleep because the most common reason people can't sleep is because of due to anxiety. And I'm causing anxiety by trying to get them to shift their belief systems around sleep that they need more sleep. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's the same type of thing, but by and large, they're the same people. So they are willing to take that risk. They just, they need encouragement. They need the structure laid out. They need to, they need to see what the plan is and why and where they're going to land before they jump. And, and usually I can get them to jump, but it's the same, it's the same courage, exactly the same. No, absolutely. Um, Jim, it's funny that Doc would say that because you often joke that um, you're the last person that high performers come to see as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that's the joke is uh, most people will try everything possible. Um, you know, let's say they're in a slump, whether in their sport or at work or in life, they'll try everything possible um, before coming to see someone like us. <laughs> you know, so we're always the last call. Um but yeah, the, the, the sleep thing is interesting because there is a big psychological component just like there is with nutrition. So for example, uh, one team that I worked with, they would go out and as a team discuss the game after the game. Mm -hmm. And the nutritionist working with the team at the time was saying, wait a minute, that's not the best food for you. But what ended up happening, and so she said, hey, we have all the food at the clubhouse, have the food at the clubhouse, it's healthy. Well, she didn't understand the psychological and the social component of them going out together to debrief the game. So once they stopped going out to debrief the game, the team started losing more games. So it's right. really interesting how this all fits in. And one of the challenges I hear from student athletes, for example, is, yeah, I know it's important to go to bed at, you know, at a proper time, but I spent all day, you know, at the, you know, lifting weights and going to class and going to practice and going to study hall, I need time for myself. And so, you know, versus feeling like just a productivity machine that never gets to be a kid, you know, or never gets to be, you know, do some things that I want to do. So it is tough. Uh, I think that uh, 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 Jerry Seinfeld really nailed it when he talked about the night guy versus the morning guy. The oh, night yeah. Guy night, to... <laughs> night guy screwing morning guy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And so that's what I see with a lot of athletes is night guy will screw morning guy and night guy stays up a little bit, you know, just being a kid or just having fun. And then, but knowing, you know, feeling a little guilty about it. And then the next morning it's like, oh man, I got to go to weights or I got to go to practice. And so yeah. it, it's a tough balance. It's a really tough balance. Yeah. Homer, Homer Simpson has a similar one. Uh, he's, I think he trades his soul for a donut, the devil. 
And he's like, that's a problem for future Homer. <laughs> future Homer. <laughs> Present Homer wants a donut. So that's a problem for future Homer. Yeah. Um, with what, what um, Jim said there, Kirk, the, so the student athlete, say it's a two-sport student athlete, right? Which I was. Um, it wasn't D1, but it was still, you know, Coach Lamar is retiring with 700-plus wins, so the basketball side was real. Um, so the student athlete, let's say they're working a job or two on campus. They're doing two sports, and they're highly academically motivated. And they And actually – they have the chance to earn a, a little top up with an academic scholarship if they say keep a three seven or a three point five GPA. So they're firing all on all cylinders. Mum and dad worked really hard to help them out a little bit, you know, with their sport growing up. And so they feel right. that weight of expectation. So they get back to their room at say, you know, ten o'clock at night, ten thirty. They're exhausted and they know they should probably start, you know, chilling out, but like, dang it, you know, I need to call home or, you know, call a girlfriend, boyfriend back home, maybe, let's say. Um, I need to, you know, shower up or take a bath or do whatever they need to do. Um, I've got to, I, I need like two or three hours to unwind here. But yeah, right. oh, shoot. I forgot we got 6 a.m. Um, call for my other sport tomorrow. And if oh, I don't right. go to bed soon, my gosh, I'm not going to get nine or 10 hours. I'm only going to get seven or six. What am I going to do? What would you say to that person, particularly just college student athlete in mind? Yeah, well, I'm, I, I think the first thing is that you have to realize that, um, and, and we're all bad at realizing this when we're young, and I've, I've been there myself. Um, but you, you have to realize that there are only so many hours in the day. There's only so many things that you can do. And so if you, if you want to say that you're your day is maybe, um, you know, broken down into sort of, uh, obligations. Um, and then another section, you know, being sort of, um, you know, recreational or, or, uh, or, um, optional, optional behaviors, right? So like it's optional whether or not you call your parents is optional, whether or not you call your girlfriend, uh, assuming that your priority is your sport and your and your education so if those things are your top priorities probably all the obligation time is eaten up right and and you're going to have uh the you know the more time you put in your sports the more time you put in your academics the less optional time and recreational time you're going to have and you have to be okay with that balance and not do like i did is think well you know i'll figure out a way to make that work i'll figure out a way to make that work and the way what you yeah and the, and the way you figure out to make it work is you just sleep less uh and you deprive yourself of sort of all recreational activities you don't you know you, you never go to the beach and lay down and read a book or you know you uh you know you, you skip your uh you know you know for me in college i was you know i wasn't an athlete in college i went to college after the seal teams and then medical school is like you know, I just cut my workout shorter, you know, in the morning because I got, you know, whatever. I'm not, I'm not an athlete. I'm here to you know, be a doctor. So I'm going to work really hard in this. I'm going to, um, and so you have, you have to realize that, you know, there's a cost, right? There's a cost for every single choice you make. And that, and the cost of that is like, okay, you're not going to have time probably to be a great boyfriend or girlfriend. Like that's, that's just the reality of it. Um, you know, unless, and, and I would select a, a boyfriend or girlfriend that, has that you know has goals and ambitions similar to yours so that they'll understand the drive to do well and and all that uh you know the the next thing is um you know there there is definitely something for being able to unwind 
and and get ready for sleep. You know, we evolved to do that when you know when you look at our ancestors and you look at uh, hunter gatherers that survive in society today, which uh, you know around the world, which uh, I guess they're not in society by definition, but around the world there are hunter gatherers tribes still around. There's thousands of people that have never seen electricity, uh, and and we and we study these people, and and just as we thought, just as like you know um, Victorian era journaling and so forth taught us, uh, you know pre electricity people fell people went to sleep about three hours after the sun went down. They didn't go to sleep right when the sun went down, right? So what we try to do as as adults is we're like, okay, turn off the light and get in bed, and we think and we think we're going to go to sleep. Well, that's not how we're programmed. There is a there is an unwind period where you're shifting a lot of the neurophysiology towards an environment that's better able to go to sleep. Now you you can push yourself to just be exhausted and just fall asleep, um, and that's breakdown of ATP. Like we get we get too technical if we, if we get into the weeds with that. Uh, but it, but essentially, okay, you you have to say, okay, these are my priorities, and then these priorities to some degree are going to get in the way of the other things that are important to me, um, the optional things, right, or the luxuries. It's important to think. It's important to realize that sleep is one of your obligations. It's not in the luxury or it's not in the optional category. Um, and every hour that you take away of sleep, you're going to lose an hour and 15, an hour and 20 minutes of efficiency. You're going to increase your risk of injury. You're going to decrease your athletic performance. You're going to decrease your pain threshold, uh, increase your perceived effort for doing the same workout. You're going to increase your injury risk. You're going to decrease your strength, your endurance, everything. You're going to be a worse, worse athlete. You're not going to be able to think as well. You're not going to your memory is not going to be as good at all this stuff. So that's not in the optional category. Um, I guess it'd be my, one sentence answer to all that rambling no i love that um let's talk a little bit about the henry ford production line if we can for a second and more so the philosophy mm. than we're not going to talk about cars with you but we could i guess but you probably know yeah. more about it than we do but anyway my wife and i share a little mazda cx5 it's very boring um i really want that new ineos grenadier from britain's richest man jim ratcliffe it's basically an old defender but with a bmw engine but that's by the no. mind Jim's heard me right. talk about this enough. He's look, he's giving me the evil eye about it. So I'll shut up. But anyway, so you, you touched on a little bit like that guilt where you would think, man, I really just want to go to the beach and just read a book for an hour or maybe a, for as long as I want. I'm not even going to take right. a watch. My phone's going to be in my dorm room or wherever in my office. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go for a hike and not have to fear the five zoom calls I have after pick something. Right. Yeah, um, right. Do you think that that Henry Ford industrialization slash um, production line mindset of we're going to get the clock on how long it takes to put the wheels on, to put the camshaft in, the gearbox, and we're going to get it that thing down, and it, right. I'm going to fire anyone that doesn't do it quicker and replace them with someone right. else that can. So we're going to be churning out a car every six minutes, and it used to take us 10 days whatever it takes right. to get there. And now that is how we define value. Do you think right. that we've applied that production line mentality um, <laughs> too much to the nth degree and that that's affecting our sleep, that that's affecting our hormonal balance, that it, it, it's just buggering us <laughs> up? Is there any validity yeah, but, in that? Yeah, yeah. There, there, it's, uh, you know, it, there, there obviously hasn't been like a random randomized clinical trial uh, to, to – to know that unequivocally, but the data suggests that uh, very well that um, 
sleep deprivation really became a thing for us uh, with rural electrification, at least so in America, I know that I know our data, it would be different data, obviously, over in the UK or Europe. Right. Um, but, you know, as the world westernized, time became money, they became synonymous. And then once there became electricity, and you could have lights on and you're running machines, you can run machines at night with lights the same as you can yeah, run machines sh- during shift, the day. Shift workers too, yeah. right? Right. And so now, uh, you know, now that time is money and I've just become a cog in the machine, if, unless I'm one of the factory owners or one of the upper executives, you know, uh, I'm never going to be wealthy. I'm always going to be striving for something else. And the only way I'm going to make more money is to put more time into it. And one of the easiest things for me to, to get rid of because I'm not, and, and this is really a responsibility thing, right? Uh, if I'm a, if I'm a father and a husband, then I have responsibilities to my wife and children during the day. But while I'm asleep, that's just me, right? Nobody's counting on me to sleep, but me. So I can cut that out. I'll cut that out of my day. And we still do it today, right? You see, you, you go, you know, go to any office where, you know, whether you're looking at the C-suite or looking at one of the cubicles out on the main floor, go in there and say, okay, uh, boss dumped an extra four hours of work on me today that I have to, I have to be ready for tomorrow. What are they going to do? What's the most likely thing that they're going to do? They're not, they're not yeah, they're going to stay up late. You know, if they have four extra hours of work, they're not, they're not going to skip their television show. They're not going to skip dinner and they're probably not going to skip their workout if that's a thing for them or they're not probably even going to skip half that, hour. That, that might be the workout might be the second thing to go though, unfortunately. After right. This, and, and that's what goes next. Workouts always go next. But the first thing people give up is the most important thing. They say, oh, sleep. I, I get rid of sleep. Uh, and, and that's, and that's a valid argument if it's something, if you're young and you're healthy and you're doing it occasionally. Okay, I'm with you. Once it becomes the routine, um, like for me, I mean, I just kept adding things to my schedule. You know, I was I was married. I had a kid. I was working. I was working almost full time, and I was going to school full time, trying to get into medical school. And what I just kept doing was like, uh, you know, I'll, you know, I became a runner for one thing because my workouts were taking too long, driving to the gym, working out, driving home. Inefficient. You were inefficient. Yeah. Yeah. And I was sleeping about five hours a night on, on average, you know, um, and then on the weekends, I was trying to catch up the best I could. But yeah, that's that's what everybody does. We know that's what everybody does. The first thing you do is they give up sleep. They're like, well, you know, that's that's a luxury. I can get by without it. And the problem is it's a lot like a, it's a lot like intoxication. When you have one drink, if you, you, you go to a pub and you have one drink and, you, and you're conscious. If you drove there, you're like, OK, you know, I, I need to just stretch that out. I need to wait a bit. You have two drinks, you're really calculating. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait at least a couple of hours, whatever, before I get back behind the wheel. By the time you have four drinks, you're like, I'm fine. Like, I, I'm, I'm totally good to drive. Like, you know, and you make bad decisions because your self awareness is impaired with, with alcoholism. Well, it's, dan- it's, it's impairing the same region of your brain that sleep deprivation impairs. It's, it's the prefrontal cortex again. And so your self awareness is impaired when you don't have enough, when you, when you have inadequate sleep too. So you think you're doing fine. And you think, oh, I'm sleep depriving myself, but I feel fine. Like I, I still, I'm still getting it done. I get up in the morning. I feel energetic. Well, again, backing up to what we talked about with the fight or flight system before with, you know, fist fights, car crashes and things like that. That's a huge dr- dump of stress hormones. One of the stress hormones is epinephrine and norepinephrine. And norepinephrine is essentially adrenaline for the brain. So it stimulates you and it makes you feel pretty damn good. Uh, but. Yeah, that maximal level can actually make you 
that's over the top and can cause obviously anxiety. But when you when you wake up with inadequate resources to get through the day, the way you wake up and get yourself going is by increased stress hormones. The problem is that stress hormones are catabolic. You know, a hundred percent. All stress hormones are catabolic. So you're using your body as a fuel source to get through the day. And uh, when you wake up in the morning and you feel pretty good, you think, oh, well, it must be enough sleep. No, you're, you know, you, you stayed up late, stressed out over what you have to do in the morning. So you went to sleep with high stress hormones. You didn't get your stress hormones low enough to be truly anabolic and recover. So no matter how much time you spent in bed, it probably wasn't going to be adequate. And now you're getting up at the same time as usual. So you're sleep deprived. You knew that all through the night. You had high stress hormones all night. Now your stress hormones started peaking up in the morning when your alarm clock went off. That's causing even more stress hormones. And now you think you're feeling pretty good and you're feeling pretty good because of the stress hormones. But the problem is like, you know, cocaine or amphetamines or something that's catabolic. You're using, like you're actually breaking yourself down and you're harming yourself by running around on the stress hormones. You're essentially aging faster is what you're doing. You're electively aging faster. For sure. And how does the stimulants sedative cycle play into that? So I get up, I feel like crap, not good, because that started to build up over 20 years. Say so this isn't confessional at all. Yeah, it yeah. is. Um, but anyway, it's not autobiographical. And Jim, I want you to chime in here. Next question. Um, and to riff off of Kirk a little bit. But, um, so the first thing I do is I write a note to my, son who's 14 and is the only morning person in the house and it says son's name um please turn on espresso machine underlined five times as soon as you read this parentheses otherwise daddy's going to be buggered all day so he does it and i'm like all right and jim knows this about me um and so bang bang goes the first cappuccino down and then i'm like oh crap we got this big interview with doc let us throw down another one. And then we keep going or like in Michigan, then say I keep that going where I had a venti iced Americano because we were told we get food in between and we didn't unless we brought a cliff bar or something. And so it was like work all day on presentations um, and PowerPoints and handouts, go get them printed at Office Depot and then go work for seven hours plus parent and coach conversations. And all we had is coffee and water, right? So now I'm, I'm extending the stimulant cycle. And then afterwards I say to Jim, Jim, I need a pint of Guinness like right now or I'm not going to sleep. So I take my sleep right. remedy, you know, shameless plug. I do, I do take it and I, I recommend it because I firmly believe Doc Parsi's sleep remedy, folks, it works, but it can't break the kind of stimulant cycle I'm talking about. And that pint right. of Guinness takes the edge off. Um, but I wake up again feeling like crap and I rinse and repeat. So not only have I added more density, intensity and volume to the stimulant side, um, and I've extended that window longer and later into the night, but now the, the sedative side becomes imperative, right? Or maybe I'll pound three ZMA as well, just in case. Mm, little right. extra vitamin D and I'll have three beers instead of that one Guinness. And Jim's like, wow, you drank three Guinness in like 20 minutes. What does that do into my body when that happens, when I add stimulant sedative cycle to too much work for 20 plus years? Yeah, well, so there's, there's a couple of things going on there. So uh, we will get into this now because you brought this up. We have to say it now. As, so as you, as I'm sure you know, most of your audience probably knows the, the energy source for every cell in your body is ATP, right? Adenosine triphosphate, meaning three phosphates. Every time... They, a chemical reaction happens and you and you pull one of those phosphates off, you cleave a phosphate off of ATP, 
um, it releases energy and that energy is used by the cell to do whatever that cell does. And ATP breaks down to ADP, which is dye, AMP, which is mono, and then eventually just A, which is adenosine. Now, your brain has adenosine receptors in there. So as I said, you're born into this contract that it takes about eight hours to recover from 16 hours. Well, how does your body know what eight hours, 16 hours is? Like, how do you know? Like, you don't, like, you don't technically have a clock, right? Not, not something that's hours and minutes. Like, you have a, a biological clock that's, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's built into you whether there's a sunset or sunrise or not. Uh, but you can adjust how it fits in with the sunrise and sunset. But that circadian rhythm is there whether the sun exists or not. Um, so you have some, you have some sort of little clock system in there, but again, it's not in hours and minutes. So one of the one of the ways that you know uh, that you need to sleep is by adenosine. So adenosine binds to these receptors in the brain, and that causes what we call sleep pressure. So when you've been up for multiple days in a row, and you can fall asleep standing up, you can lean up against the wall and fall asleep, like you just need to sleep so badly. It's all you can think about, right? That's sleep pressure. That's maximum sleep pressure. So the more you engage in activities, the more muscle mass you have, uh, the more adenosine you build up and adenosine causes sleep pressure. The harder you work your body, the harder you work your, you work your brain, you're using your cellular energy, you're building up a lot of adenosine that makes you feel like sleeping. Now, one of the effects of caffeine is it blocks adenosine receptors. And so you don't get that binding those receptors and making you feel like sleeping. Uh, now that's not the same as energy. The energy, the energetic energizing aspect of, of uh, caffeine is stimulating your adrenals. Um, and that's releasing stress hormones, the same as that fight or flight pathway that we're talking about. So you're moving up to maybe 20% towards fight or flight. And if you're sleep deprived, you know, you're maybe you're starting 10% higher, 20% higher already. So, you know, you're really causing some physiologic stress and, um, and some catabolic activity. Um, and the more you do that, uh, the more catabolic you are. So catabolic means that you're taking complex structures and making simple structures out of them. And anabolic is the opposite of that. So if I use amino, if my body uses amino acids to make muscles, that's anabolic, right? That happens while I'm asleep. That happens during deep sleep, primarily slow wave sleep cycle, the first two sleep cycles of the night. That's primarily what's going on. The first three to four hours of, of your night is anabolic. You're repairing, you're regenerating, you're restoring, replenishing. That's super anabolic, very low stress hormones, really high anabolic hormones. Having high stress hormones during the day is catabolic. So you're using your muscles to break those down to give your cells amino acids to do functions that they need to do. And so catabolic activity is essentially what we call aging. If I could wake up the same every morning, right? If I could, if I could repair 100% tonight, I would wake up tomorrow morning exactly like I woke up this morning. I wouldn't, essentially, I wouldn't age. So I would, I would not be aging. Um, anything I lack anabolically or any excess catabolic activity is aging me faster. Alcohol, unfortunately, although it is a, it, it is a slight dissociative, which is what, really how it's helping you uh, go to sleep, um, it it also interferes with deep sleep. So if you have about if you have your three genesis, or is it geni? I don't. Know, it should be. If it genesis. isn't, it should be. Uh, yeah. So you have you have your three genesis. You're you're impacting your deep sleep. You're diminishing your your deep sleep by probably about. 30, 40% by having alcoholic drinks. If you use sleep drugs, 
that does it even more. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and sleep drugs even more so impact REM sleep, which was where all the emotional and cognitive learning and on and, uh, you know, muscle memory and like all the, all the neurological aspects of physical activity, that's all being uh, done during REM sleep and you're impairing that as well. So, um, and, and for you, you have a very cerebral job. So your ability to come up with good word choices and remember things that people say and, uh, you know, all of, all of that type of you know, prefrontal cortex executive functioning, all of that, you know, all of that's being, uh, restored, replenished and solidified while you're in REM sleep. So sleep drugs would be even worse for you than alcohol because alcohol mainly messes with deep and does a little bit with REM. And sleep drugs do the opposite. So when I would have SEALs who were taking both, which is how I got into sleep is because the SEALs were coming to me with performance issues. Uh, and then I learned a lot about sleep and the sleep drugs and alcohol and all this stuff. Like, oh, so they were using alcohol to go to sleep and they're taking sleep drugs to go to sleep. And so the sleep drugs were wiping out 80% of their REM sleep and 20% of their deep sleep and the alcohol is a lot knocking out 80% of their deep sleep and 20% of their REM sleep. So I'd send them to do a sleep study and they'd come back with 99.9% stage two sleep, which is transitional sleep, which isn't really sleep. You know, isn't restorative really at all. Um, so that's what you, that's what you're doing to yourself. You're causing, you're causing that cycle. Um, and you know, essentially every, every time you do it. And another thing, it sounds like what you're doing, um, is too much caffeine. Uh, maximal, maximal performance enhancement of caffeine is 200 milligrams. If you look at a performance okay. curve, it, uh, it, so it would be whatever your serum level changes would be from an instantaneous 200 milligram hit. So like taking a 200 milligram cap capsule, whatever that would raise your serum level, your serum blood levels to, that's the max, that's essentially the maximum effect for you. And everybody's a little different. So like how much would be mm -hmm. in your serum? is different right. than other people but yeah, it turns out that, that that's that that's about the maximum and after that performance actually starts to decline which i think is maybe calculated into starbucks drinks because i know some of their drinks have like 600 milligrams of caffeine in them so as you're drinking it you're feeling good and better and better and better and then you kind of overdose on it by the time it all absorbs in your bloodstream you're actually feeling worse and you feel like you need another coffee Sure. So with regard to the stimulant side, everyone, you know, yourself, we know Chris Winner a little bit. I don't know Matthew Walker, but I read his stuff and watch his interviews. And I'm Jim and I are both night people. So we, we ride a lot at night. As Stephen Kotler, you know, the flow state guy once said to me, um, every writer he knows is either do, putting down a couple of thousand words before anyone else is awake or vice versa right. at the end. So right. we're more on the other end and we just wouldn't have written any books otherwise. But um excuses aside um what would be your app and, and again knowing that circadian rhythm wise we're a bit shifted towards the night what would be the absolute cutoff for caffeinated tea and coffee that you would recommend uh, that's that's really hard or to to give it a window I, give it a window maybe well so the, the the problem with caffeine is that the half-life of it meaning so you know let's say you absorb 100 milligrams yeah. in, into your bloodstream if the half-life were six hours, that means six hours later, you would have 50 milligrams. Six hours after that, you'd have 25 milligrams and so on. Right. Um, unfortunately, the half-life of caffeine is anywhere from four to 32 hours. <laughs> oh, it some people it's on, 32. Wow. I mean, it's, it's an, it's enormous. It matters. It, it matters on, you know, absorb, absorbing it into your gut and into your bloodstream 
that can vary drastically, but just your ability to process it and break it down uh, varies hugely, wildly. And it does vary in individuals from day to day. Uh, so you won't always process caffeine at the same rate every day. Um, but you would have to figure that out for yourself. And what I would say would be you know, a, a, a couple of simple, simple nest metrics is you could, if you, if you can say, uh, meditate around the same time every day. If you just sit down calmly, meditate, clear your mind, you know, whether that's true meditation or you get this, the concept of it, right? Just truly relax, do like five minutes of meditation and take your pulse. And say like at 6 p.m. Or uh, just breath work, right? For people that are not or, so yeah, into the meditation. Work, right. yeah. yeah, box mm -hmm. breathing, anything like that. So mm -hmm. like just do something to settle yourself down for five or 10 minutes, take your pulse and say, okay, what's my true uh, you know, minimal stress, uh, pulse rate, heart rate variability would be even better. Right. Um, but take your pulse and then take your pulse after an hour after you drink a coffee. How long does it take you to get back down to that? You know, it would be a self experiment. So if your resting pulse non-stressed is 55 mm -hmm. and you're, if you're 75 after drinking coffee and doing the same type of relaxation technique before taking your blood or before taking your, uh, your pulse, you know, how long, how many hours does it take you to get back down close to that? Like say, how long would it take you to get back down to 60? Can I use Brian McKenzie and Patrick McKeon's protocols to cheat with the breath work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, as, as long as it, as long as it settles you down, uh, whatever. No, no, I love that. And say one was to have one Guinness or one glass of wine. And I, frankly, I usually do that. And again, not to make it all about me and Jim, I'm, I'm going to, I swear I'll stop talking and turn this back to you guys in a second. But is it bad for me to have that? Like I usually do when I'm reading, say for a, so take a hot bath or a soak, you know, hot tub, whatever, hot shower. And then I read for an hour, hour and a half while drinking said Guinness and frankly usually it is one just one 12 ounce can um is that harmful to do it then would it be better to do it earlier in the evening or does it not really matter if you're just talking literally one drink yeah um I I would say for a man you know, one to two drinks uh you know probably probably would uh, you know on the ledger would balance out to be more salubrious than uh, the, the not having it for most people, uh, because we run around in a stressful environment. Uh, you know, our lives are just like we, we aren't designed to be in the environment that we live in, right? And there's too much stimulation and there's too much stress for us. And, um, and there is something re relaxing and salubrious about that, right? So you need to, you need to have that. The, the keys are to have it, uh, as far away from bedtime as possible, right. uh, mm. which, that doesn't mean drink when you wake up in the morning. It means, you know, like, re, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, as far away from bedtime as possible. <laughs> Jim's and hiding then, his Guinness and his gin. And then, his and, then all, and then always at least, uh, 12 ounces of water, uh, for every alcoholic drink, um, uh, yeah. because it is, it is toxic and it is dehydrating. Uh, you know, once, once alcohol dehydrogenase transforms it into essentially formaldehyde, it's in your bloodstream. And it, and it comes, you know, sort of toxic. Um, and until that gets cleared, you're going to get stress hormones from that toxic, toxic environment, just like you would if you were bitten by a, you know, poisonous animal or some by a poisonous insect or something. It's the same sort of toxin registration in your, in your brain that there's a, there's a poison. So you're going to release some stress hormones. Um, 
the best way to figure out what would be ideal for you uh, would be to have some sort of uh, sleep tracking device and just see what your limit is. Um, what what I find is that um, what, what I find is that two alcoholic drinks um, done about uh, you know finished about an hour and a half before bed mm-hmm. uh, with plenty of water still raises my my resting heart rate throughout the night it'll it'll still raise my resting heart rate five to seven beats uh but alcohol right before i go to bed will raise my resting heart rate throughout the entire night 10 to 15 beats Mm. um and i and i know that's i know that stress hormones right um but like i said the stress hormones during the first two sleep cycles should be the lowest they'll be during any 24-hour period um, which means that's the lowest sympathetic tone, which means that's the lowest sympathetic input to your heart. So your heart should essentially be running off of your AV node. And if you're really, if you're really well relaxed and you're really in deep sleep and you're really in slow sleep, well, nutritionally, metabolically sound, your heart rate will be really low. It'll be like way lower than it would be at any time during the daytime. And you know, you, I, when I'm, when I do things really well, my resting heart rate will be 36 in the nighttime. Uh, wow. 30, 36 to 40, right? Because that's about where my AV node is set. And if there's no sympathetic tone to fire my heart, then it's just going to be my AV node doing it. No, I love that. Yeah, thank you. So selfish, just sleep, free sleep therapy session for myself aside. Um, Jim, well, stim- stimulant sedative cycle among athletes. Um, what are you seeing there among substance abuse um, and just j- anything else Doc mentioned in the last 15, 20 minutes? Well, first of all, we're uh, Doc and I are going to have to be your surrogate frontal lobe from now on. I think uh, <laughs> if you keep things going the way you're doing, and I'm going to have to finally get that whoop band too, right? That yeah. people have been pushing me. No, I'd love that. I, I remember uh, when I was at Arizona State University and talking with athletes about substance abuse. I'd always recommend drinking water. Also, to it slows you down if you're going to drink. You know, if you have a, a glass yeah. of water after each, you know, alcoholic drink, it slows you down. So you're going to drink less alcohol. Yeah. Uh, and then as Phil and I talked about, you know, the saying, uh, drink your first, sip your second, refuse your third, I think is important. Yeah. Uh, well, the other way it was told to me, and this was by the, uh, you know, do you know, Hillsdale College, Kirk up in Michigan, you know, those guys no. or heard of them. So, uh, the num- number two to President Larry Arn, who some of the listeners may know, he told me that in a different way. He said his rule is in his household, him and his wife and, and now older kids is, uh, one is good, two is okay, three is too many. So, yeah, I like that, Jim. Yeah. So um, kind of bringing this home here, um, what are some of your, you know, kind of projects that you have going on that are super exciting for you? And and one of the questions I was going to ask earlier is how did you get so fascinated and interested in sleep, which is, you know, when you really think about it, we all should be. And yeah. thank you for the good work <laughs> that you're doing. But um, so I'm glad you answered that. It was helping Navy SEALs in terms of, you know, how to benefit. Uh, yeah, and make good decisions. But yeah, what do you have coming up that's exciting? What 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 uh what maybe keeps you up? It's probably a bad uh, analogy mm-hmm. or metaphor here. But what keeps you up at night in a good way? You know, he like, just can't resist. Yeah. He can't resist the dad joke. He just can't. Just can't. Yeah, that was kind of a dad joke, but yeah. it was. Yeah. Uh, so actually, uh, yeah, those those two are tied in. So, um, you know. It, as you alluded to, the reason the reason I know anything about sleep is, you know, I, I went back to the SEAL teams as the physician of the SEAL teams, just wanted wanting primarily to give back to the community, right? Because uh, there was 
the, that experience in my life was transformational and took me from a really bad place and probably a, a, a dark future uh, to a, a really good place and, and a good future. Um, and so the, uh, the, the, when I went back to the SEAL teams as their physician, I was really well versed in sports medicine and orthopedics, which is what I thought I was going to do with my career. Uh, and I went there and, and that's not what they needed. They had plenty of expertise in that, but, um, they're a lot like professional athletes, which I'm sure you, you can identify with. The worst thing you can do is put them on the bench. Um, and so they usually lied to their healthcare providers and said, everything's great. Like I got no problems. Like I'm good to go. Like I have no complaints because they don't want to be put on the bench. That's the worst thing. And so, um, you know, usually healthcare providers were their enemy. And uh, they only used them for absolute necessity. You know, when something got broke or shot or, you know, blown up, then they'd go see orthopedics for trauma. Um, but they came in and they started telling me, you know, their, their plight, like their stories about, you know, poor mood, poor motivation, poor body composition shifts, poor sleep, um, you know, poor memory, uh, being emotionally sort of short and edgy with their kids and wives and at work and you know just just not really being happy with life and not performing the way they thought they should and they thought they should and i had no idea like i had no idea what was going on like i don't know like i'm a doctor i do disease like they don't have any disease they want to help with performance and so you know over some time and it's a long uh it's a long uh story but over time we figured out uh, that it was that it was sleep and the use of sleep drugs and alcohol and sleep deprivation in a community that just didn't value sleep. I mean, and during SEAL training, we go a week without sleep. So how much how much can a couple of short nights do to you, right? If you if you're if you're uh, you know your metric is that well I've gone a week without sleep before, so it's not a big deal. That I'm only sleeping four hours a night. It's kind of the way they thought. Um, but uh, yeah, the most exciting thing in my career right now. Um, it, and I, it's been true since I left uh, the military in 2013, but uh, there's just a lot more funding, a lot more interest right now in uh, doing doing projects. So I'm on a lot of advisory boards for a lot of nonprofits that want to do things for SEALs uh, and other special forces because it's a very damaging career, but guys retire really young. So, you know, most of these guys are retiring in the early to mid forties. So they have time for another career, but they're broken. Right. Uh, and they're more metabolically and cognitively and emotionally broken than they are physically broken, but obviously they're physically broken to a lot, to a large extent too. Um, and so, um, a, a couple of, a couple of organizations have really, uh, gotten strong nationally and, and we're, we have an opportunity to not only do uh, really good known medicine, but, you know, uh, get into sort of a lot of these, uh, you know, not that not, we're not doing it, but we're collecting data on a lot of these alternative treatments like, you know, uh, psychedelics and these plant medicines, as they're mm -hmm. called and so forth, uh, to try to see what we can do around, you know, sort of helping guys repair their brains, um, you know, whether it's PTSD symptoms or just, you know, traumatic brain injury stuff, um, you know, the concussive blast wave injuries that, you know, that cause brain injuries on these guys is ubiquitous. I mean, every, every single, uh, you know, special forces combative guy has hundreds, if not thousands of traumatic brain injuries, you know, anywhere from mild to moderate that they've never, they never knew they had. Um, and it's causing a lot of brain inflammation and a lot of, you know, cognitive decline. Um, and so we're, 
we're we're getting you know we're getting we're making some headway on that and uh and it's becoming a larger part of my day uh a larger part of my career and, and i'm really excited about it no oh, i love That's that great. um jim do you have one one final thought before doc tells uh, <laughs> listeners or viewers where they can find him and how they can continue to follow his work i just really appreciate uh all the wisdom and uh and uh, tips and tools and techniques that you've shared uh, today. Um, like you said, uh, you know, uh, sleep, you know, you didn't say it, but you, you kind of said it. Sleep is a superpower and uh, yeah. we all need to take good advantage of it. And I know I've learned a lot today, so I really appreciate it. And thank you for the good work you're doing with the military and for uh, just the community as well. Yeah. No, I appreciate Thanks for the kind words. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, uh, we're good. not, we're not sponsored by Guinness either, so yeah, I, I wish <laughs> we didn't ruin anything for us. I wish we were sponsored by Ineos, though, because maybe we could all get a free rugged SUV out of it. Maybe we'll work on that. Um, Doctor, in conclusion, yeah, to add on to what Jim's saying, really appreciate your time. Um, looking forward to our next conversation next week. And uh, yeah, could you just tell listeners that, um, that don't know wh where they can find you online and how they can continue to follow both your great work with those organizations <laughs> and personally? Yeah, so uh, my my website is doc, short for doctor, D-O-C, and then Parsley, my last name, like the P-A-R-S-L-E-Y, so docparsley.com. Uh, my website has you know, videos, media appearances, uh, blogs, ebook. I think you can download my book from there, like a Kindle version of my book from there. Um, resources you know some downloadable pdfs to help people sleep instead of bedtime routines for themselves and their kids and stuff like that obviously the sleep supplement is on there as well um and then you know i have uh any social media that i'm on yeah i i i think it's at kirk parsley so my first name is kirk k-i-r-k at kirk parsley's instagram uh, is the primarily thing i'm on but uh all, all of my social media links are on the website but the one I, I think the primary one I use is Instagram. Thank you for displaying courage. Um, yeah. both when you were in the military and serving our country, thank you for your service. Um, your courage to, to start the consultancy and to formulate the sleep remedy, which again, not sponsored by that or by you, but, um, I do use it and I found it to be very beneficial. And, um, yeah, and, and just in general for having, having the courage to do good things and to be, to help good people become better people. So thank you. Yeah, my, it's, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.